Hey friends, you're listening to the Hope and Hard Pills podcast, where we are exploring practical insight about racial justice and social change. I'm your host, Andre Henry, uh, singer, songwriter, and author. And for the past several years, I've been on a serious intellectual quest to understand how do ordinary people work together to change the world through collective action? And many of you have been on this journey with me uh, if you're listening to the show. Speaking of being on the journey, uh, you can be one of those people on the journey with us. Uh, one way that people really contribute is by being a part of uh, the Patreon that allows this show to happen. Our, our patrons help us to fund all of the expenses in regards to the show. So you can definitely be a part of the work here. and We'd be glad to have you. Uh, just go to patreon.com slash Andre Henry. Uh, the music on the show today is brought to you by me. And today I'm joined by uh, Michaela Loach. I did say your name correctly, right? Yeah, you did. Yeah, you smashed it. Okay, I thought so. All right. So today I'm joined by Michaela Loach. She is a climate activist um, based in the UK. Uh, although she is currently joining us from Ocho Rios, Jamaica. Shout out to yeah. the yard people, them, everybody. <laughs> big up, big up, big up, Moby and Ocho yeah. and Kingston and all in place there. All right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, Michaela is joining us. And we're very glad to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. And also, I also want to apologize to everyone for the crickets in the background and for my not great audio sound. But we're going <laughs> to move. It's going to be fine. I'm really like honored to be here. And thank you for having me. Yeah, that's actually what I meant to say was why I brought up Jamaica is because I'm familiar with this noise, you know, the crickets <laughs> in Jamaica and all the all of the bugs and insects in the in the trees. They like to sing in the evening. So, mm-hmm. you know, they sing you to all, sleep. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you all actually, you know, you're getting a treat, actually. Mm, you know, that's how we can sell it. It's not a problem. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually great. Just close your eyes and picture that you are in Jamaica with McKinney. <laughs> It's really great to have you on the show and always inspiring to see, you know, people who are really putting uh, putting their their energy, their time, their bodies in the struggle for a better world. And so you've been I just wonder if you might tell us about your uh, your journey into doing climate activism. How did mm. this start for you? Yeah, I think that. I had a bit of a roundabout way of getting into climate stuff because growing up, I never saw climate change as like an issue that I saw as that important, which if I'm being completely honest, like I think um, growing up as someone who was racialized as black, I saw like the kind of the more, what seemed more pressing issues of white supremacy as more kind of important mm-hmm. to be fighting rather than the climate, which I saw was a separate thing. I saw it that it was this mm-hmm. um, thing that was this movement that was led by like hippie white people and it wasn't really mm-hmm. for my people. And I didn't see it as 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 connected to all these other issues that I cared about. I was more kind of involved with migrant justice activism and like mm-hmm. anti-racism work in that way. And then at the same time, I think as climate became more in the news and, and it became talked about more, I also realized this is a huge and pressing problem and something that I should mm-hmm. be doing something about. But then the only ways I was told to do something really was like, oh, well, you know, go go vegan, buy less things, do all these mm. different like lifestyle changes. So I kind of started doing all the lifestyle stuff whilst mm-hmm. doing the other organizing work that I was doing. Um, but didn't still hadn't made that connection between yeah. climate and this and migrant rights and anti-racism mm-hmm. white supremacy. And I don't remember the like aha moment, but at some point I realized that these issues that I cared about around racial justice and around migrant justice and um, around dismantling white supremacy is inherently connected to the climate crisis, both in the creation of this crisis, um, mm-hmm. but also in the impacts of this crisis. Because 
if we look at um, the fossil fuel industry that learned its blueprint from colonialism and from the harm that's mm. been caused by um, countries like the UK all over the world and from this idea of extraction and, and profit and just making as much capital as you can off of natural resources and, and people. Um, and then mm. also in the impacts of the climate crisis, those are being felt most on people of colour worldwide and on yeah. black and brown communities and indigenous communities. And so it is this huge justice issue that cannot be actually disconnected from social justice and from right. um, white supremacy. And actually, I think for me, it was realizing this connection that got me into organizing around it. Yeah, I love that. I love how you're connecting those things, because uh, I wanted to ask you about that with environmentalism. You usually do see white people at mm. the vanguard of those movements. And I, I want to say historically, that might be too strong a word, but I, I just and I always remembered when you hear of someone being an environmentalist, it's most it's often likely in America that they are white. So, I mean, how do you view that, you know, and how have you been navigating that? Um, and is it different? Because I know that, you know, once upon a time, I remember like, gosh, this is going to be 2010. I saw a documentary called Earth 2100. Mm-hmm. And it was about the climate crisis. And it was showing like pictures or imagining visions of what the world could look like in the year 2100. And that was literally the only connection point I had to the uh, climate justice movement. Mm. I knew of no one who was talking about it at all, except for maybe I would hear in passing that Al Gore, you know, was saying something about, it. you know, <laughs> <at the time. laughs> so anyway, uh, you you get what I'm saying is yeah, like yeah. I'm, I'm I don't meet many black people who mm. are talking about this. Mm-hmm. So could you say more about that? You know, it, mm. why why is the environmental movement so dominated by by white people, and why should that change? Mm-hmm. That's a whole thing to unpack in so many different ways. <laughs> I think one thing that I would start off with is I think it's really important that we know that what we are uh, often what we are seeing, not within our communities, but in media, is a choice that's been made. Like the mm. media companies are choosing who do we want to make the face of this movement or even yeah. movement in movements and stuff. It's like, who do we want to make the face? Who's the most palatable face? Or or mm-hmm. who do we want people to think this movement is represented by? And so often it means that white people will be chosen for those spaces. Or even I know myself, like I will be chosen, I'm sure, in many spaces because I am a more palatable black person because I am light-skinned and because I gain privilege in loads of other ways as well. I don't think that the media representation of a movement is always that mm-hmm. like reflective of the reality of a movement and we need to like be aware of that sometimes. And I think that a big part of that is that I don't think that like... I don't want to be like, well, but the powers that be don't want us to realize that all of our issues are connected and all of our struggles mm-hmm, are connected mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. then how much more power would we have when we realize that actually all of these justice issues are connected to each other and actually this is yeah. a racial justice issue as well and all of us need to be organizing in this kind of intersectional way where we bring all these struggles together. And I think that it's that con- disconnection that probably has made many communities not feel like they can be involved in climate in struggles or, or movements because mm-hmm. it's not seen as 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 issues there's there's kind of more pressing issues for a lot of our communities of like if we are fearing very immediate violence right now we're not going to care as much about something that feels like it's further away um but then actually when we when we look at um kind of like statistics in in the u.s particularly um the black community is more likely to care about the planet and to do more planet friendly like behaviors than the white community 
is. And that's just because I, and and I think the reason why we don't see that as environmentalism is that even the idea we have of environmentalism is so whitewashed as if it has to be this particular type of environmentalism for Uh it to be planet friendly or things. But there are so many things that I think, like, I don't know, I think of things that how my mum would or like never would throw away food or would use Tupperwares or reuse things or like would mm-hmm. be using the ice cream tub as a <laughs> to hold yeah. food in after. These are things that are yeah. actually planet friendly activities or ha- having hand-me-downs. All these things are things that are kind of as- things that environmentalists would do. But when they're done mm-hmm. by um, like heritage communities or diaspora communities, they aren't seen as environmentalism. Um, mm. But I think, sorry, there's so much to unpack around like representation, I think, within the movement, but also mm-hmm. about, involvement and things that I think I'm still trying to work through as well and work out yeah. why it's ended up being this way. Um, because when we think about also the impacts of the climate crisis and, and who's being impacted most, um, if we think about the whole continent of Africa, that's being impacted significantly. Mm-hmm. And it's only recently that people are starting to really listen to African voices on climate more. Um, yeah. And that's something that I think we need to be centering more on Caribbean voices as well, because these are all mm-hmm. places that are being impacted a lot. Um, and yet we don't seem to, it's, it's a choice that those voices aren't being listened to, I think, and those communities mm-hmm. aren't being empowered. You're making such an important connection that a lot of people I don't think have made. And that is, I don't remember exactly how you said it earlier, but it was something like the footprint of colonialism that like these Mm -hmm. same countries that had been under, you know, the rule of various European kingdoms. There's some resemblance of how the climate crisis is playing out to that very legacy, to that history. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of the many times, well, you know, from time to time, I've done it several times. I just like get on Twitter and point out again that racism comes from Europe, you know, like that, that white people, <laughs> white people invented it. And you would, I think you might, I don't know, you might be surprised or some people who are listening might be surprised by how many, uh, how many people in the UK and Amsterdam will show up in my mentions. They'll be very upset that I said that because we like to think that it's an American problem. You know, like when we talk mm. about this in a global context, we say, where is racism in the world? Where does it emanate from? Everyone wants to say, oh, that's an American thing. So anyway, I do feel like you're making these connections between white supremacy, colonialism, the climate the climate crisis. I wonder if you could just tease that out a little bit more, say, say a little bit more about that, because it's not obvious to a lot of people. Mm. Yeah, no, definitely. Because so I think if we kind of like look back at like colonialism and what it was, it was this like the UK in particular being the big power at that time and, and many other European mm-hmm. countries like Spain and Germany and other countries that I think sometimes we forget about also that they also were huge colonial powers and um, went across the world and plundered and committed violence against the indigenous communities that already lived there and against the land that was there in order to extract as much profit as possible for white people living in Europe pretty much. Mm-hmm. And that was also how transatlantic the transatlantic slave trade happened was that was also going onto the African continent and kidnapping people from their land, from the land that they had a connection to and that they had lived in for, for um, many generations and kidnapping them and, and moving them over to somewhere else in order to be used as forced labor. Um, and all of that is like, is disconnecting kind of from nature but also from our own humanity it's like it's going into places and saying i don't see your humanity i'm just gonna like use it for what i can profit from and we see that happening now with the fossil fuel industry and how it operates and how it's Mm. how kind of operated over time as well 
Um, right. Oil and gas extraction is hugely harmful to the natural environment, but also to many communities of people as well. If we look in, in Nigeria, in the Agoni land, so the Agoni people that um, live near the Niger Delta, they have been systemically and continually harmed by the fossil fuel industry there by, com- by companies that are owned by people living in the UK or living in other European countries who have mm. come in who have realized, oh, I can, ex- I can extract from this land and I can exploit and damage this land for profit and have taken out oil and gas, um, well, oils particularly from the land, polluted the rivers so that they can't be drunk from anymore. So the people, the indigenous people who live there can no longer drink clean water. And then also there have been, um, there's, there are nine activists called the Agoni Nine in that area who fought against this and were murdered and, the, and by Shell because of this. And it is it is literally what we're seeing is is the harm that's being caused is being done to communities of color worldwide the most harm it's people literally being killed for standing up for their own land and their rights and their humanity um yeah. and it and the kind of the blueprint of this has really been framed by colonialism of the idea of that we are disconnected from nature but also we're disconnected from mm-hmm. our own humanity that we can cause this much harm and i think it's right. important um that we but also uh, that we like think about that but also kind of connecting back to colonialism as well I can't actually remember where I read this, but I was reading something recently that was talking about how um, te- interesting and telling mm-hmm. it is that suddenly loads of island nations are being given given independence from the British state and from other states at the same mm-hmm. time that rising yeah. sea levels are going to engulf them. And therefore, mm-hmm. it's almost like another way of which these colonial powers being like, we're not even going to look after you after um, wow. this this issue that we've created is going wow. to harm you even more. Um, and so I just think it's, it's impossible for us to disconnect it, and yet it has been done so much. And I think we need to think, who does that narrative benefit of these, these right. things being disconnected? Right. And I, I looked up just the founding of Chevron while you were saying this, because it, it may, just made a connection for me when we talk about like, okay, so first off, the logic of like, we're going to extract profit from the land without regard to sustainability of these and without respect to the ecosystems or the people living there is kind of obvious mm. when when you put it when you spell it out you're like oh, okay i see that parallel i think the thing that people don't also realize is that some of these companies are very old <laughs> you know like <laughs> i mean like chevron is founded like in the 1870s you know so like we're talking about just wow. like within a decade of the civil of the ending of the civil war in america like mm. And then put that up against when some of these countries that were colonized by, you know, the British or whatever, like when they got their independence, like Jamaica, for instance, Jamaica got its independence in 1962. Mm. <laughs> you know, like my mom was alive in Jamaica when they when they got their new flag, the flag that we see the black, green and gold now. You know, for those of y'all who are listening, you know, um, this is how these things are, are are kind of tied together. You know, like we, we're living in the wake mm. of this legacy and the same logic is threatening uh, all of humanity. Also, I want to ask you about the campaign that you're working on now. Um, uh, and mm. ac- actually, before, before, what does your work look like right now? You know, like, are you... Ooh. Yeah, yeah, yeah what, yeah, what does it look like? Yeah, so I think at the moment, I, so I've been really focused on a couple of different key campaigns because I think probably a lot of us people who are organizing about this in the pandemic, I felt like I just started doing loads of random stuff. Like I was like, oh, mm. I'm at home. I'm going to join all these different groups that <laughs> and re- or, like remotely organized because 
I can. And I realized how spreading yourself too thin is just not a good or Mm. effective way to organize as well. In some ways, I think having a focus is good. I think I found that I before I thought if I had too much of a focus, I wouldn't be connecting the issues enough. And that wouldn't be the best way to do it. But then I've realized that actually there's there's something to be said about um, having some sort of like... Mm -hmm efficiency um in yeah. the stuff that we're doing so mm-hmm. i've been really focused on um on kind of organizing work around oil and gas in the uk so basically organizing mm-hmm. to try and prevent oil and gas expansion in the uk and to mm-hmm. try and actually transition us away from that and yeah. that's looked like so many different things it's looked like using social media to um talk about these different campaigns so particularly um stock cambo and paid to pollute are two campaigns i've been working on stock cambo is basically there's a massive new oil field that the uk government are trying to approve in Mm. the uk um just off the coast of scotland and they're trying to approve it just before hosting cop 26 the biggest um un climate conference in the world it is completely ridiculous Mm. and they shouldn't be doing this and if they're going to call themselves climate leaders they shouldn't be doing it so I've been working on that campaign. And then also I'm a claimant on a court case, which is a very different thing that I never thought I'd be doing, but we're here. Mm. And um, we're basically taking the UK government to court around the huge amounts of public money that they give the oil and gas industry in the North Sea every year. So mm. since the Paris Agreement was signed by the UK in 2016, um, they've given £4 billion of public money to North Sea oil and gas companies, which promotes them in polluting. Oh and this is the gosh. same government that has said this whole, oh, we have no magic money tree for like social welfare or for a healthcare system or anything like that. But then they'll mm-hmm. give £4 billion of public money to companies that are already multi-billion pound companies um, in order to promote the policing. And it actually makes the North Sea the most profitable place in the world to extract oil and gas. So it's completely outrageous. And I kind of signed up to being on that case um, because I think, so I was born in Jamaica, but I grew up in the UK. And I realized Mm -hmm. that being in the UK, I do have greater proximity to creating change that could have a bigger impact on emissions than my family do in Jamaica because the UK yeah. is a huge um polluter worldwide has caused historically so much harm but currently causes a lot of harm through emissions and and climate and all that stuff and I see myself being someone who like is in the UK and based in the UK and is a UK citizen as having kind of proximity to changing that and so I never thought that I'd go down the legal route because I'm very much like a glue myself to stuff on the streets kind of person. (laughs) But um, I think that I've realized that we can use the courts as a way to, I don't think courts can bring us justice, but they can can get us on the way to accountability in some way. Like they can give us something Mm -hmm. that we can hold them to. Um, That's a whole different thing that I've talked about a bit um, on the podcast. But also I have a podcast with um, my friend Joe who is top legend and did your um civil resistance course and is great and we talk about all these issues and just try and like communicate about these things because i think we need to organize we also need to explain what we're doing when we organize as well Um, yes absolutely and it's now said that my connection is unstable again so i hope that you heard what i said (laughs) i did i did what keeps you hopeful and sometimes people trip over that word word about hopeful so i could you could also just take it as what what keeps you involved what keeps you engaged in the work Hmm. I think that there are a lot of things I think I see hope as like an active stance like I don't see there's a quote by um Rebecca Solnit from Hope in the Dark where she says like 
hope is not like a lottery ticket that you sit on, like hoping that you're lucky and that you'll win one day. It's an axe that you use to break down doors with an emergency. And for me, that's yeah. what hope is. It's this axe that I break down doors with or that we break down doors with. I actually think I quote you all the time when I talk about this, which is really funny. <laughs> I'm saying this to you. But I think you said something on a podcast episode about like how we need to become part of the sleeping giant that awakes. Yes. And I think I say, yeah. And, and I think that like for me, there's another quote by Aaron Dusty Roy where she says, um, Oh, another world, <laughs> another world is not only possible. I, I can't even stumble on. I quote this so much. She says, "Another world is not only possible." She's on her way on a quiet day. I can hear her breathing. And for yeah. me in my life, like I have to listen to where I can hear that new world breathe because that's what keeps mm. me going. It's like if I can hear her breathing, then then like we can get there. And I find that it's when I'm like organizing with other people that that's when I can hear her breathe because we actually become that breath and we become that axe that breaks down doors because there's no one coming to save us. We'll save ourselves if we just come together and do that. And so for me, I think that like, yeah, that's what brings me hope is because when we come together and, and change things, we can become the sleeping giant that wakes and we can create new worlds and, and we can do that when we come together. Um, and that's kind of what keeps me going, I think in a lot of ways, but yeah. also it's seeing people who've been doing this work for so much longer than I have, and they're still going. So I'm like, they, yeah. There must be something. <laughs> there must be something. Yeah. And yeah. someone that I think I look to a lot with that is Andrew Davis, who's been doing this work for like half a century of course. <laughs> and still going. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know what? If she can be doing this and still have hope and still and still be organizing and, and speaking and changing worlds and minds, then then there must be something in this, and we must be doing something. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, Rebecca Solnit is one of my favorite. That Hope in the Dark is one of my favorite books. Mm. In general, it really changed my life. I really appreciate that that answer. So, where where can people keep up with uh, the campaigns that you're doing and with the work that you're the other work that you're doing? So, you can find me on Instagram at Michaela Loach, um, or our podcast is the Ike's Podcast. It's on all podcasting mm-hmm. platforms. Um, we actually have an episode coming out soon about climate litigation and like what can the courts actually do? What are the limitations of that? Which I think is quite interesting. And we talk a lot about climate and justice and race and all that jazz. Um, so those are the best places to find me. I am on Twitter, but Twitter terrifies me. So you're not going to find much from me there, apart from me um, cowering in a corner. Um, so <laughs> probably better to be found on Instagram or the podcast. Um, I should say our court case is paid to pollute, so at paid to pollute on Instagram. Um, and you can keep up to date there. And there's also a petition that anyone in the world can sign at paid pollute.org.uk wonderful well once again Michaela thanks so much for joining us on the show Uh, we hope to talk to you again soon thank you so much for listening today if you like what you heard and you haven't already please subscribe on your favorite podcatcher Also, leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts helps us get into more ears and minds. You can find all the links in the show notes for today's guest, as well as Andre's newsletter, Patreon, and book. You can connect with Andre on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at TheAndreHenry. That's all for this episode of the Hope and Hard Pills podcast. We'll see you next time.